Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. When Alexander of Macedon took the throne of his father Philip, he inherited an expansive and wealthy kingdom, a hardened and meticulously constructed army, and a cadre of aristocrats and nobles who were used to victory and wanted more of it. Moreover, Alexander was well-educated, in part by none other than Aristotle himself and a military veteran. But when Philip took the throne, he possessed none of these advantages, either for his kingdom or for himself. It is impossible to understand the campaigns of Alexander the Great against Persia and how they transformed Eurasia without first understanding Philip of Macedon and what he accomplished. Such is the premise of Adrian Goldsworthy's New History, Philip and Alexander, Kings and Conquerors. Adrian Goldsworthy is a prolific historian and novelist who lives in Wales, and this is his third appearance on Historically Thinking. At least I think it's the third. could be the fourth. No, it's the third. Um, so, Adrian, how have you been doing? Very well, thanks. <laughs> it's nice to be back. Um, so, did you uh, enjoy the benefits of pandemic for editing this um, this this volume, or was that already uh, yes, done by that time? The annoying thing was the British and the American versions are slightly different, so I had to do two sets of copy edits, two sets of proofs consecutively. They always arrived within a few days of each other, so <laughs> that was slightly soul destroying. But but otherwise, lockdown and all these things, they really don't make much difference to a novelist or a writer. So I wrote a novel yeah. early on in lockdown and researching for the next book. So um, isolation is, is normal, really. <laughs> That's, yeah. I was at, uh, I, I, I probably have said this on the podcast before, but uh, I'll have to say it again because it's it's sad. Uh, when this all began back in March, I was at sort of the last dinner party, and uh, people were saying, "So, how's your life going to change from all this, from this lockdown as this happens?" As it's happening, and I was thinking, and I was thinking, "Oh my God, it's not going to change at all. This is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> this is pretty much my life. <laughs> I've, I've been practicing." I've been practicing social isolation for years. <laughs> and it does make you feel guilty when, you know, other people have had it pretty rough. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it really does. Yeah. So let's talk about this uh, book. You, we uh, said uh, after we, before we, uh, before I sort of hit the record button, um, that I wasn't the only reason that I would talk about Alexander is because you wrote about him. Um, I've avoided Adolf Hitler and Alexander the Great as topics. Um, I haven't had a, don't think I've ever had a podcast on the Third Reich. Um, that's probably a bad thing, but uh, I, I thought, well, I wanted to go where people don't go with history podcasts. Um, but you wrote a book about Alexander the Great, and fortunately, it's also about his dad. And his dad turns out to be really, really interesting. Um, but we're going to have to start with some first premises here. Um First of all, who were the Macedonians, and and were they Greek? It's two quite big questions. Um, the Macedonians, essentially, it's the people who live in the area to the north of Greece, northern Greece. Um, you know, the modern-day region is broadly the same, though you've still got the dispute about the former Yugoslav Republic and everything claiming to be. Basically, Macedonia, is in, most of it is in modern Greece. Um, ethnically, as with most ancient nations, it's very hard to tell. They're probably a mixture of migrants or people who are already settled there. The climate of the region is much more like continental Europe rather than the Mediterranean. So 
it's more fertile, gets a lot more rain, colder winters, less extreme heat in the summer. Can't really grow olives there in the same way you can in the rest of the, the Greek world. So it's it's slightly different and it, it, a different society appeared there as a result. Whether they're Greek or not is one of those problems that it rather depends you know, on who you were and your point of view. Um, the Greeks did have this broader sense of who were the Hellenes, you know, who were these people that, um, and it wasn't just linguistic, it was cultural, because the Macedonian dialect, and it's a distinct one, is clearly a branch of Greek, and the Greek language, and the aristocracy, educated people in Macedonia speak Greek from very early on. On the other hand, when one of the ancestors of Philip and Alexander, Alexander I, wanted to compete in the Olympic Games, they had an argument, according to Herodotus, about is he a Greek or isn't he a Greek? Can we let him in or not? And then because the royal family claimed that they were descended from exiles from the city of Argos in southern Greece, it was so, okay, that's fair enough. We'll take that. You're in. Um, and he was supposed to have, um, he didn't win, but he drew and then, you know, um, won a decider afterwards. He didn't win a medal, as far as we can tell, or did they? have medals in those sense but he didn't win the event but he may have won one of the associated events so the fact that they had to think about it and that that man later became known as the philhellene you know the greek lover suggests that for a lot of greeks the macedonians you know they're they're definitely on the on the verges of being barbarians you know they're more like the illyrians the thracians these tribes to the north because they have kings they don't have proper cities they don't do all the the cultural things that it meant to be greek but it's it's one of those borderline things all the way through. But by the time of Philip, Alexander's father, he can enter the Olympic Games and there's no question about it. So um, it seems to be over time people come to accept the fact that, yeah, just about if you want to attack them or insult them, you call them barbarians. But otherwise, people actually think, yeah, they're, they're pretty much Greek. But they don't appear in the Iliad, is that right? They that's, don't that directly, deal. no. So that's a, a big deal for particularly for the aristocracy for whom Homer is the, you know, the ultimate source that they can return to and justify all sorts of um, quite convoluted modern political deals by saying <laughs> they stood near each other in the, the list of ships or whatever, or on the, the plains of Ilium, so it'll be all right, or there was this deal between the hero, this hero and that hero. Um, these things are fairly flexible, but one of the big problems is, is that we talk about the Greeks and what the Greeks think, and primarily, we know only about the wealthy and the aristocracy of Athens. They're the people who did yes. the writing. They're the people who leave the sources. So we don't necessarily know what other cities thought and people from elsewhere, or even the less well-off in Athens, necessarily. So sometimes we make these sweeping generalizations. The Greeks believed this. The Greeks did that. But we really have a very limited perspective. And it, it's 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 grossly oversimplifying to assume that everybody thought the same way. Because there are Greeks in Asia Minor, there are Greeks in the Black Sea, there are Greeks in Italy and Sicily who are doing things so, differently. But South France. France. There's Greeks. And yeah, South France. Yeah. Yeah, so um, Spain the same, you know, Emporion, places like that. So, you know, these communities must have diverged in lots of ways, but there's still enough that... Um, they're accepted as Greek, in part because the colonies remember the mother city that sent them out in the first place and maintain some links even centuries later. So it's easier if you can cite something like that or if, as you say, you can go back to Homer and say, well, in the Iliad, it says, and, uh, go from there. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, now you're, you're drawing on chapter three, which is just great, um, which is like one of the best sort of simple explanations of, well, simple explanations of deep complexity of a Greek polis 
and how they all interact or don't interact. And we'll talk about your acts of historical hygiene later on, but that, that was like one of the big ones is the entire third chapter. Um, where, where I felt you were getting things straight in your own head before you kept on, before you could keep, before you could go on, you had to get this all straight. After all, you're a Roman historian. These Greeks are, they're, they're odd. They're complex. They're, they're, you know, they, they just, they do strange things. Well, one thing I realized writing that chapter is that I need to write a book about the, the fifth century BC because there wasn't, I wanted something where I could just refer to and go and see so-and-so. This will give you a good survey of what's going on, how things develop. And there isn't really one. Yeah. So I signed up to write one, the book after next. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to hear that that's in the pipeline. Um, so you've referred to the, the, the royal family that comes from Argos, hence the name, they're Argiads. So is Macedonia that kingdom with the Argiads at their head? Is that how we could define Macedonia in the simplest way? Yes, I think that's probably the, the, the best route. I mean, there are there seem to be regional kings and regional dynasties, but one of those things, there, there is clearly something mystical, something religious about the Argiad bloodline that means that no one from outside it ever becomes king of Macedonia until the bloodline's gone without the, the immediate aftermath of Alexander's um, career so that you keep finding night from as far as we can tell quite early on these macedonian royal the kings at least if not the rest of the family are polygamous so they tend to produce a lot of children so there are lots of different lines of the family who compete for the throne because there doesn't seem to be certainly an absolute law that it's always the eldest son who succeeds the eldest son of the king you can sometimes break that rule. You tend to do it. There's an inclination that way, but other people can claim that um, they'd be just as good. But you have, um, you know, there's a story in um, a much later source, but it, it claims that when the king died and the army was about to fight a battle, the Macedonians brought his son, who was then just a baby, onto the battlefield and won. You know, there's the inspiration. There's this sense that somehow for some particular relationship with the gods that... Um, you need someone of that bloodline. And it, it, it isn't the case in other kingdoms in the ancient world that you can only have this one family. So there's something distinctively Macedonian there. Huh. They're not uniquely so. Uh, but it does, and, and, in one sense, it's a strength in that the nobility can't challenge for the throne. On the other hand, because there are so many Archaeads, there are always lots of problems and you do get a lot of murders and coups and civil wars. No, I mean, in the first chapter or two, it makes Game of Thrones look like, you know, uh, a, a really, maybe you know, EastEnders or something like that. I mean, it, yeah. it's, uh, it's really, it, it's, it's pretty vicious, uh, to put it mildly. Um, the, complex, the interesting, and murderous. If somebody doesn't kill one of them, they tend to live a long time. So you get lots yeah, of people like in the 70s and 80s. Um, it's so that, you know, unless you die violently, you're going to be around a long time and you can be challenging for the throne for a long time. So uh, it's, a, it's a different dynamic. The Romans don't seem to have lived so long, but maybe they were just better at killing each other. <laughs> so what uh, Macedonia, uh, sort of like Thebes, which you discussed on the podcast uh, recently with Paul Cartledge, had a very uh, uh, a big blot in their copybook when it came to the Persian Wars. Um, I looked at Herodotus, and and it, it was an Alexander who came to Athens to try to convince them uh, prior to Plataea to make uh, peace with Persia. Yes, I mean it's very hard to know whether. Formerly, Macedonia is part of the Persian Empire. It's certainly, it, it's, it's, it's allied, it's considered by the Persians to be a client state. They contribute troops to Xerxes' invasion when it comes through their territory. 
and um, Alexander, as you say, acts as the spokesman and the ambassador to Athens. Um, you know, you've then got the story in, in Herodotus where he's supposed to ride up to the Greek pickets before the, the final day at Plataea and, you know, warn them of the Persians' plan and that helps the victory and gallops off saying, I'm Alexander of Macedon and all this sort of thing. And they turn on the Persians when the Persians have lost and are retreating and start plundering them. But in Macedonia, it, it's the great irony that later on Philip and Alexander will lead this great war of revenge on the Persians, because actually they had been on the Persian side for the yeah, bulk of yeah. the war. Um, but that's, again, it's the nature we forget just how large Persia is. And you can also, you could look at the whole expedition under uh, Philip and then fulfilled by Alexander as rather of the pattern that the Persian dynasty, the Achaemenids, had come to power with their empire. It's a fringe nation for one of these bigger empires that develops a good army, a good dynamic war leaders, and takes over. So you can almost see, you know, we tend to see everything in sort of simple East and West, Europe and Asia, but actually you can see the Macedonians as already part of that Persian world anyway. And mm -hmm. in a sense, it's a sort of familiar story playing itself out that someone on the fringe becomes strong and overthrows the existing dynasty. Well, that's a very nice point. So let's talk about Philip. Um, he is one of how many brothers? Um, I, I presume that the, the, sister, the daughters don't ever rise to the throne. Um, there are a lots and lots of boys to fight it out. Um, but how many brothers are there? Who's his father? How many brothers um, are there? And uh, how? what's his early life like? Well, he's got two full brothers, uh, both older than him, Alexander and Perdiccas. Um, so when you think he's born the youngest of three from one of the king's wives, prospects of being king are probably not that high at the start of his life. He's also got at least three half-brothers from one of the king's other wives, um, who seem to be slightly younger, at least, than his older older siblings. It's, it's a little difficult to tell. Um, you know, they're fairly sort of shady because he kills them um, before they get to do very much. Um, You've also got other branches of the family around. So, and again, one of the problems you face in looking at people like Philip and Alexander is while you could say go to a Roman like Julius Caesar or Augustus, and you, you have a fair idea of how an aristocratic child would be raised, how they would be educated, the sort of rituals that surrounded every stage of their young life. We don't have that sort of information for Macedonia. We really don't know. So it's much harder to generalize and very, very little is said about Philip's early life. Um, his father dies when he's still comparatively young. The oldest brother, Alexander, becomes king. He lasts a couple of years before he's murdered. Um, the second brother rules, but with a regent because he's too young for a couple of years and then will die in battle. So it's, that's how Philip will become king. But during that time, Macedonia is desperately weak. Not only have you got competing claimants to the throne, you've obviously had you know, the older brother murdered as well. Um, you've, you're threatened by your neighbours from Thrace, from Illyria, from Paeonia. You are dominated by Thebes at the time is the, the dominant power in southern Greece. And it's also because it's, it's situated there in central Greece. It looks to the north. It intervenes in the north to settle disputes between different factions, between Macedonia and others. So you have this case where for maybe up to three years, certainly for quite a long period, Philip is sent as a hostage by his brother Perdiccas, and he's sent to Thebes along with other young noblemen, uh, sort of surety for the good faith of the, the Macedonian king. 
So he'll spend several years in very comfortable captivity. You know, this is your effectively a guest friend of a, a Theban aristocrat. And, you know, he lives there. He enjoys the hunting, the, the gymnasium, the, the, the social life of a nobleman in one of these powerful Greek cities. So it's not terrible. But on the other hand, the point is you are being held there against your will, however nice it is. And the whole reason you're there is because Thebes is stronger than your own kingdom. So that's clearly quite an important influence on him. However, what we get is a paragraph or so in our ancient sources talking about this. And this often extends into this vast, oh, well, he learned about military discipline and tactics from this. And he learned about politics and all this sort of thing. Maybe, maybe not. But, you know, in the end, this is just a teenager who's probably enjoying himself a lot of the time. So, I mean, in fact, you, you go through. Yeah, it's easy to say, oh, yes, he learned this from Pelopidas and Epaminondas. And he you know, learned how to really use the hoplites and new tactical forms. and blah, That's all fantasy. Um, we, we can't know that. But the one thing we can know is you have this great concluding sentence, which I really, really like. You know, I made a note and said, steal this. Um, he would never again find himself in the hands of enemies or any foreign power. Um, can you elaborate on that? It's, I mean, I, it it's is, a great point. It is. It's, and it's such a big difference when you come to look at Alexander, is that it's utterly inconceivable that he's ever going to be a hostage anywhere. Um, that shows you the difference Philip has made to Macedonia. But it, it gives you an indication of just how weak Macedonia is at this time. And it's, you know, hindsight is a, is a great um, problem for any historian of any subject. But there is a dreadful sense where the more familiar a story becomes, the more inevitable yeah. it can all be. And you just start thinking, yeah. well, it was bound to happen that way. And then suddenly, um, you know, decisions that were people had to agonize over at the time or battles that were incredibly close fought and could easily have gone the other way suddenly become this inevitable victory. And it all seems easy then. And you're really mm -hmm. taking away from the, the lives of the people involved when they're, you know, um, they didn't know that. And one point that I think is, is very significant is that there were plenty of people alive when Alexander died who could remember Macedonia before Philip who could remember that weakness, who could remember Macedonia as this fragile, picked-upon kingdom to the north that had never amounted to anything. So for yeah. you in your lifetime to see that change, it makes it very hard for it to sink in. You know, this has really happened, both for the Macedonians themselves to think, wow, what have we done? But also to everyone else thinking, no, surely that can't really have happened. You know, it's the shock factor that... Um, we lose because we just think, yeah, and then this is where, this is the rise of Macedon, this is the career of Alexander. You know, it's, um, you can tell the tone, if, if to use an analogy, if you read um, Gibbon's Decline and Fall, from the earlier books, he gets more and more pessimistic. And this is an MP in London, seeing the American Revolution from the British side, and going from the, yeah, we're bound to win, to hang on a minute, we've just lost all these colonies. How on earth did that happen? Yeah. We think it's inevitable, yeah. we're used to it, and we can't imagine it happening another way. But that's not how people live their lives. And it's interesting, I mean, from, for someone who's writing a big book for basic books, I mean, I just want to say that you could go out, I mean, you couldn't because you have your professional pride, but you, you, could, um, you could go that easy way and tell the story that people want to hear. 
the, the story of you. Oh, yes, this is the way that things go along. Because, you know, I, I, I've said this a million times now, but there are like 850 books about George Washington, at least. Mm-hmm. But 840 on close examination, or even not that close, are the same damn book. Yeah. Um, because yeah. they, people just copy one another. And one of the things they copy about is sort of the inevitability, his inevitable progress to being the, fir- the first, you know, the first man, um, mm. which, you know, once you've, once you've uh, forgotten contingency and causality, um, then anything's mm. possible and you can write stories like that. But that, that's, that's not the story. That's not, that's not George Washington's story. It's certainly not Philip of Macedon's story. Mm, exactly. It, it's so it's, it's hard to do. It's very hard um, because we just know, but you, it's, and it can, you know, you have the sense that you're going to be repetitive and you keep trying to remind people that, look, they didn't know this was going to happen and this could all have gone terribly wrong. I mean, both Philip and um, Alexandra are wounded multiple times. Just a slight difference in aim, a slight difference in strength of the person delivering the, the blow. They might have died or been crippled very young. And what followed wouldn't have followed in the same way. In the same way, you know, when um, think of George Washington riding between the lines at Princeton, had he yeah. got shot... Things would have been somewhat different. Um, different. You know, people, people take risks. These are genuine risks. The fact they get away with it doesn't mean they were bound to. Yeah. Um, but Philip comes to power. So how can you give us a quick, uh, a brisk description of the soap opera way in which um, he eventually comes to power and basically by age 28 has done something really incredible? It, it is staggering, and again, it comes back to just the sheer speed. Okay, yeah, it's a few years, but nevertheless, the, the scale of change is, is huge because he's come back in his late teens from this um, period of imprisonment at Thebes. His brother, Perdiccas II, has become king. He's disposed of the regent who was dominating before that time. He's starting to get ambitions. He's starting to be aggressive, but it doesn't all go as well as he planned. The relationship between the two brothers is a little bit uncertain. We just don't know enough. But Philip seems to be given some responsibilities, perhaps a small number of troops. And then the king of the Illyrians, this man in his 80s, Bardalus, attacks the upper Macedonian territories, thing the Illyrians are doing every every few years because they can and it's, it's profitable. You take plunder, you extort money from them, or maybe you take territory. Perdiccas does what the Macedonian king should do, forms his army, marches off to fight the Illyrians, and is beaten. And he's killed along with the greater part of his army. So Philip becomes king because the only son of Perdiccas is an infant, can't really lead at a time of crisis. And Philip's looked around. It's, he's, it's probably opportunism on his part as well, going around and persuading the Macedonians, at least the Macedonian aristocracy in particular, that I'm the man for the job. I can stop the rot. But he's faced by challenges. There are at least two rival claimants from other branches of the family straight away. One of them is backed by Athens. One of them is backed by a Thracian king. So these people are getting troops from overseas or from from outside the, the kingdom. And Philip manages over the winter between the defeat and the next spring, the next campaigning season, he defeats both of the rivals. One, he basically bribes the backers in Thrace to ditch this man. And the other one is landed by the Athenians, but Philip, with probably a small number of soldiers, managed to outwit and defeat the invading army, in part because the man's turned up at the Macedonian capital, proclaimed himself king, and nobody's rallied to him. So it's a bit of a damn squib. 
But Philip's done that. He then spends the winter preparing to fight the Illyrians, who've occupied large parts of Macedonian territory and don't seem to be planning to give it back. So Philip forms an army, and he's got to form, raise an army to defeat people who've just defeated you, which is always a hard thing because the, the moral advantages with the other, the other side who are expecting to win. And he introduces some early reforms to the army, and but mainly it's about even the, the sources emphasize he goes around making speeches, encouraging people, convincing them they can win. And then he leads the army off, confronts the Illyrians, refuses to negotiate if they won't retreat, and defeats them in battle. And it's it's a hard-fought victory, but it's the first really big victory he fights. And that's quite an achievement in the space of less than a year and a half, because they regain the territory, he takes a wife from one of the um, Illyrian royal lines, you see, you're starting to secure that border, at least temporarily. But what's really striking is that he then almost immediately goes on the offensive, and his first targets the city of Amphipolis to the east, which not only is an important trading city, but also controls extensive mineral resources and mines. So he starts acquiring things, and he'll follow up in the next couple of years, always attacking. And we tend to concentrate on Philip's military reforms in terms of his, his battlefield success. But one of the greatest contributions that he made to the success of his own career, but also Alexander's, was that he starts to develop skill at siegecraft, and he starts hiring foreign engineers, military engineers, right from the start. Because one thing Greek armies weren't very good at was taking cities. They had to blockade them into submission. It took a long time, often didn't succeed. Philip starts actively attacking, besieging the cities and taking them with a matter of weeks or months, and accepting the casualties that will come in the assault to get a decisive result. So he starts taking cities, he starts making alliances with uh, people like the Chalcidian League, the rest. so you get this sort of aggressive pattern. But once he's sort of secured himself, he then is on the offensive and he never really stops. So why do you think he kept on the offensive? I mean, certainly by, I don't know, by the time he was 28, he's pretty, he's much more firmly on his throne than the Macedonian king has been, it, it would seem, for like a century. Um, he... Uh, he's sort of he's the cowed the the nobles, um, they're not going to. He's eliminated threats from within the other Argead families. He is he's he's able to push back other Thracian and Illyrian and Athenian attempts to to dominate. So why keep on going? It's in part there is a, an ancient mindset that if you're strong, you should dominate those around you. And if you're, you show any sign of weakness, other people will try and dominate you. And again, it comes back to this hindsight element. We know he's fairly secure. And compared to the situation 10 years before, then everything looks much better. But both of his brother's reigns had started quite well. They hadn't been as weak as he was when they inherited, but they'd started with a few successes and then it had all gone horribly wrong or they'd you know, just been killed. So with Philip, he, he partly needs to, but also it's this momentum to make it worthwhile. There are still potential rivals out there, other members of the royal family who could claim the throne. And if it seems worthwhile, you have to remember that Macedonia is a very wealthy area in terms of natural resources. It's not just the, the minerals and the, the mines that he starts to acquire, but it's, it's the best source of timber in the Greek world. And you need good timber for shipbuilding, which is so important to so many of the states. But also, you know, we see the stone remains of all the big monuments in Greece. 
But during the construction, you tended to need timber for the roofs, timber for the beams, timber for the scaffolding. A lot of that came from Macedonia. So people from outside look at Macedonia and think this is an area worth dominating. This is an area worth exploiting. So it's always worth the while in Athens or anywhere else to see, yeah, we've got another claimant for the Macedonian throne. Let's back this man, put him in place. He'll give us what we want. So it's to some extent, it's to stop being on the back foot, to stop being defensive. If he keeps attacking, they're the ones off balance. But it's also, there's a nice quote from uh, the Epitome written by Justin centuries later, where he talks about Philip waging war like a merchant. He gets the spoils of victory and he spends them immediately to prepare for the next war, gambling on a bigger profit and a bigger profit. He keeps doing that. And he doesn't hold on to money. You know, the... um, his wealth increases very quickly. You can see it in the, the quality and the quantity of the coinage that is being minted. Um, but also he spends it. He spends it. He gives land in conquered territory or reclaimed territory to noblemen under the obligation they serve as cavalry and to win their loyalty. He pays his soldiers more. He hires more mercenaries. He hires these uh, military professionals and specialists like the engineers. He spends money abroad to buy friends in the kingdoms and tribes of the north, in Greece to the south. So he's always using this. So it's not it's, it's an economic system that requires more and more funds being injected into it so he can keep on doing more than this. I mean, you have the Cicero, in fact, quotes it um, in the first century BC that Philip is supposed to have said that, you know, no fortress is so strong that it can resist if a mule with panniers full of gold can get up inside it because you can bribe a man <laughs> in charge with somebody to betray it. So he's spending all the time. He doesn't often have big reserves of money because he's always spent it. And it's it's sort of the whole system that's geared towards continuous expansion. So I want to get to the, the Macedonian war machine in just a second, but a central part of this is finance and his uh, political reforms. Uh, what are they? Uh, does he change coinage? Does he change taxation? Does Do we know about what he does to further strengthen the, the Argeads and, and their position? There are a, a few things. One of them we can see under his brothers, there'd been very little coinage uh, minted and most of it's bronze. Philip, you start to get particularly silver, but also gold issues of far higher quality, far higher precious metal content, but also much, much greater quantity. And you will see the coins that Philip mints will become so important in trade throughout much of Europe that the Gauls are copying them centuries later. And you can see the transition as the, you know, the face of Philip and the chariot on the back transfer into squiggles, essentially in copies of people who'd never seen the original. But that's the standard weight you want. That's what people over a huge area, far beyond Macedonia, come to think of as that's good, solid, legitimate money. But Philip's spending this, as I said, to reward people. And one difference that happens during his life is the dynasties of the upper Macedonian regions, the upper Macedonian tribes, which had been quite strong and every now and again had broken away. Those pretty much disappear. The individuals are brought to Philip's court. And it's at Philip's court with a a much greater number of these hetairoi, these companions um, that are the king's followers, supporters, but they're also the favoured ones, the ones who feast with him, who drink with him, who hunt with him, who fight with him um, when he goes on campaign. It's it's very much this continuous sort of reminder of a relationship. He is their king and he's obliged to reward them and they in return support him. As long as both sides keep their side of the bargain, then it works. 
So he brings people there. These, these upper Macedonian monarchies pretty much go. He marries very cleverly, initially with women from abroad, um, from, from outside, to cement more alliances. And you have the development of the palaces in uh, both the old capital and the new one at Pella, um, where you can see the scale of entertainment, but also everybody's taken off. You know, these leaders go with him to fight with him on campaign, and they share in the spoils of the next victory. So there are major changes. Um, he's exploiting the mineral resources. He's exploiting the timber far more. He's exploiting the, um, you know, the wealth of agricultural produce, all that's happening, and also trade routes as well are coming through Macedonia more and more. He, so income increases considerably, but as I say, he keeps spending it. But he also does something that, again, probably took longer than it takes when described so briefly in our sources. He starts to move the population around. He settles <laughs> lots of farmer soldiers, men obliged to, to serve, are given farms in new cities, new settlements, some of them are sort of frontier defense colonies almost, some of them just in good land. He moves the population around. He mixes up the existing tribes to an extent. I mean, it doesn't disappear altogether, but the whole thing, as with the, the more senior companions, it's about your relationship with Philip rather than the more traditional patterns of you know, relationships with other local noblemen. Those are still there, but it becomes far more centered on the king. So he does centralize and control things and, you know, Alexander is later supposed to have said that Philip finds you all, you know, wearing skins and living in huts. And he brings you down to the plain and sets you up living in cities and wearing proper clothes like civilized Greeks. These are major changes, not all of which may have been particularly welcomed by people at first, but the king has the strength to impose them. And it does mean that these new colonies and cities become centers for the regiments of the army, where they train, where they recruit, because... Most of the soldiers are still part-time, but they will spend more and more of their lives off on campaigns serving Philip. So uh, how did that work? Um, uh, how, what are some of the notable features of the Macedonian army that makes it different from, say, the, uh, the hoplites in contemporary Thebes? Well, the hoplite tradition was a very Greek thing, and it, it's so closely intertwined with the city-state that it's, it's very hard to separate sort of which comes first and, and how it develops. But ultimately, it, it comes down to this focus on the hoplite, who's a, a fairly heavily armed individual. He's a spearman. He fights en masse in a, a large block called the phalanx. And his aim is to drive straight at the enemy and knock his way through. Um, it doesn't require that much subtlety in terms of mass drill. Um, you know, these, it's only the Spartans and people like that who march to music and in step and train as groups regularly. The other cities, it rather varies on enthusiasm and motivation, but it, it's also tied in with the, the whole culture of the gymnasium where you compete as individuals to show how fit you are. You know, you're doing all this publicly. It's, it's in the new. There's great emphasis on every stage of your life. You compete with your peers in the city. And everyone is striving for excellence. And the hoplites, they're, they're almost an extension of that. They, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on physical fitness, individual prowess, rather than perhaps en masse. In Macedonia, you have the problem that you don't have the same sort of city-states that you've had elsewhere because the culture is different. And so you don't have the hoplite class on which to base. And even though there are plenty of mercenaries around by the 4th century BC, the hoplite ones that are still key have largely started 
from that social class, even if they've end up being exiled from their city or losing out in a war or whatever it might be, or just deciding they want to go off and fight for money. Macedonia doesn't have that. And it's been famous in the past for its good cavalry, but there've been relatively few of them. And its infantry have always been you know, thought of as pretty worthless. And one of Philip's predecessors starts to issue um, hoplite equipment to Macedonian infantrymen. It, it really doesn't seem to make much difference. They're not very good. They haven't got the, the culture and the mentality to use these well. So Philip adopts from the start a, a, a rather different approach in that he does adopt a phalanx, but he gives his men two-handed pikes, much longer weapons than a spear that, you know, at a most basic level, keep the enemy further away. Now, they obviously require you to stay very close together with people on either side. So there's a, a whole hedge of pike heads being thrust towards the enemy. So it makes it difficult for them to get at you and you can jab at them. So that requires some basic drill and discipline. And during the course of Philip's life, the phalanx units will get more and more drilled to the point where they can carry out all sorts of fancy maneuvers, which we'll, we'll see most clearly in Alexander's campaigns, but it's clearly begun before then um, and show off. And they become just better and better soldiers, more and more confident. So what starts as almost an improvised, it's simple, a peasant doesn't have to learn much, doesn't have to have much specific training to jab a long spear at somebody or long pike at somebody. Um, and to keep together in a huddle, um, it turns into something rather more subtle. But the strength of the army on the battlefield is that it it adds in greatly improved infantry in the Pike Phalanx, um, elite infantry, the Royal Hypaspis, people like that, a lot more of the good Macedonian cavalry, the, the king's companions, greatly increase in number. And then you add in allies and mercenaries and... Um, light troops, both infantry and cavalry, archers, slingers, all of those things. So it's very much combined arms force that Greek armies were still very hoplite heavy. They, they weren't so good at using cavalry. They weren't so good at using light infantry, at least in a pitched battle. Philip ends up with a much more balanced force that is has far more strengths that in one situation, it might be that the phalanx isn't much good, but you've got the good cavalry or the good better infantry or the good light infantry that you can use instead. He also trains it to march long and hard in, in all seasons. So the success, we focus on the battles, but really, you know, Philip fights for maybe half a dozen, if you're generous, big battles during his career. Alexander only fights four battles, you know, three to conquer the Persians, one in India. But they fight far more in these skirmishes, these raids, these sieges and assaults on cities and walled villages. They're constantly at war, and it's the lower level fighting that is much, much more common and often in some ways more important. If cumulatively, it allows you to control ground and dominate people, regardless of their, their social organization. So, um, so Philip's army becomes very good at this, and it comes back to, as mentioned earlier, this um, far greater skill at siege warfare. In the old days, up until then, it was... It allowed a lot of people to last a long time in a conflict against a more powerful opponent if they could basically go back and hide behind their city or their town or the village walls and know that they were probably safe and that in the end the enemy would give up and go away. With Philip and with Alexander, you can't do that. They do lose a few sieges in each case. They do give up a few times. But more often than not, nine times out of ten, anywhere they decide to siege, they will capture. 
and that makes life a lot harder for all of their opponents. So it's it's a combined with, as I say, the, the tendency is always to focus on the battles because they're dramatic, but warfare consists of a lot more than that. And Philip and then Alexander will excel, and the army they create will excel at those other types of warfare just as much as the battles. Now, Philip, um, throughout this period, um, he's adding wives to his, uh, his rota, I guess. Um, and he's... Uh, well, as, as Dr. Henry Jones Jr. once said, it's it's not the age, it's the mileage. Um, by the time he by by the time he dies at the age of forty eight, his body has had a lot of mileage. Um, could you describe some of that? Yes, I mean, quite early on um, at the siege of Methone, he is shot in the face and loses an eye. Um, and there's arguments in the sources: is this an arrow? Is this a bolt from a catapult? Um, if the latter, then it was probably deflected off something, because otherwise the odds are if that hit you squarely, you would be killed. Um, but later on, he'll suffer, apart from all the minor wounds, he'll get stabbed through the thigh um, by a, a spear that's so strongly driven in that it drives into the saddle of his horse. You know, it, it's um, he does take a lot of punishment because there is what we assume to be a traditional obligation for Macedonian kings to lead from the front. But... Whilst Alexander is famous for doing this and charging around on Bucephalus on all these battlefields, Philip's clearly doing the same thing. Um, and one striking thing, if you look at the battles of both men's reigns and look at the casualty figures, the Macedonians suffer very, very high proportion of wounded to dead. Um, you know, it's about 10 to 1 in some cases. So it looks as if there's a fairly good chance with the weapons you're facing and the armor you possess that you're probably going to survive. You know, you can get killed, but actually you've got a good chance of taking these wounds. And in spite of, you know, what you'd think would be a great risk of infection, enough people survive because it's, it's clear that many of the companions are also getting wounded quite frequently as well, but they keep going year after year. So Again, we tend to think of Philip as this sort of limping, crippled old man by the time Alexander's ready to um, become king. It's quite possible that if he hadn't been murdered, he would have gone on for another 20, 30 years. Um, and, you know, as I say, the family lasts a long time. They seem a pretty tough bunch. And it's he tends to be seen as and perceived as an old man and as someone who's failing, someone whose strength is going, someone who has a lot of mileage, um, partly because it's the contrast with Alexander. Alexander has to be the dashing young hero. Mm -hmm. But actually, you know, we might be exaggerating. Philip's probably a lot healthier. He certainly thinks he's physically fit to go off and lead this great war against Persia that he's planned and Alexander will inherit. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't look as if he's on the, the verge of collapse. Yeah. Um this leads to a, a, a probably impossible question to answer, and I know you've thought this about it a lot. Um, is it possible to know uh, about Philip of Macedon as a person, as an individual, um, apart from his actions? Um, it's probably a bad thing and unwise for an author to say, but no, I don't think we can. Um, the sources are simply not there, either for Philip, um, even a great extent for Alexander because what we have is so much later um, you can just about you feel you're getting close to some of the Romans like Cicero or Caesar or Augustus and even there you're never quite sure because all of these people they're in the public eye they are performing for much of their life mm -hmm. and they're 
you know, people have agendas when they write about them, whether positive or negative. Um, what they were like when they were sitting there at home quietly, who knows? You know, we, it seems reasonable enough to believe the consensus of the sources is that Philip is is a very sort of hearty character. You know, he drinks heavily. He has loads of, of love affairs. He's, um, you know, he's he's aggressive. He's loud. He's he's a very big presence. But on the other hand, you get these stories. You know, he's supposed to have said that he was much prouder of his diplomatic victories rather than his military ones. Or the one that he was supposed to be fond of telling where early on, we assume, or at some point in his reign, his soldiers' pay was very much behind, and a deputation came to complain to the king and demand their money. And he happened to be wrestling at the time when they arrived in the one of the courts in the palace, and just says, oh, I've got to finish this, and then, excuse me, lads, I need to just wash myself after this bout. So runs up, dives into a swimming pool, and then swims lengths up and down until the soldiers get fed up and bored and go off. Um, and he's supposed to say, well, that's how I diffuse that mutiny. So you get the sense of sort of a sense of humour, but you can also get utterly different portraits of what he's doing at any one time. You know, after the victory at Chironea, some of the sources depict him as being very restrained, very respectful to the defeated um, Greek alliance. Others have him leading this drunken procession and mocking the prisoners um, and being rebuked by one of them for it. You, it's so hard to know. And all the sort of the critical things that if this were a modern person, we'd want to know about their family life, relationships with, um, you know, wives, children, this sort of thing. It's really not there. Um, and the few anecdotes we have are all questionable. So I think with both Philip and Alexander, this is, this is a biography in one sense, but it is really, it's almost a history. It's trying to work out and show, well, this is what they did trying to explain how they did it. You can guess a little bit at why, uh, but beyond that, to pin them down as people, I think is impossible with the sources. Well, let, so we can, let's talk briefly about young Alexander. Um, you, you, as I mentioned in the intro, um, Aristotle, a Macedonian, was his tutor for a while. And um, you make the, you say rather dryly that historians have tended to rate um, Alexander is a student based on what they are disposed to think about him as a personality. Um, so how gifted a student do you think Alexander was? I suspect he was pretty talented in a lot of ways. I mean, he does seem intelligent, whether he was, you know, whether he was nice is one thing, <laughs> <that is about, laughs> but also whether he, you know, how that, how his mind worked. Um, there are different forms of intelligence, different ways. And clearly, in many respects, he's a very practical person who likes physically doing things. But that's also part of education in the, you know, the Greek tradition. So sure. um, it's it's so hard to know. And because he does so much in such a short time, what's you know, many of us change during our lives anyway. But what um, and clearly the experience of what he was to do in Persia were bound to change him and everybody with him because it, it's it's a huge physical, mental, emotional toll, both for good and bad. Um, mm. But it's, again, we, we sometimes forget as well, Aristotle is at the stage of his life, he hasn't yet written his most famous works when he's tutoring <laughs> Alexander. He's still not as well known as all that. Um, again, it's the coincidence of these two people who will become amongst the most famous people from the Greek world to this day, 
meet, but then so little is known about what they do. But um, again, it, it's we often have modern assumptions about what people should be learning at that stage in their life, and they are very alien to, for all we can see of Greek or, one would guess, Macedonian attitudes yeah. as to what's right and proper for a young nobleman or a young prince to be learning and how they should be acting. Well, I mean, how does what is Alexander's life up to this time? Um, how does he fit into um, uh, to to Philip's collection of of wives and lovers? Um, is is he from the first wife? I mean, how how does that how does that work amongst the uh, Macedonians? He's num uh, he's from number five wife. Um, but again, your polygamous, you know, there are, there doesn't seem to be a, a formal status of the sort of the great wife or anything marrying more women for the king doesn't mean he has to divorce the existing wives. So although, you know, the, even the Romans struggle to understand this because it, it's so alien to their way of thinking. And it, it's the polygamy of, of, of Philip in particular, but one assumes Macedonian kings before, was something Greeks just didn't understand and found rather repulsive. Um, hmm. Clearly the relationship between Alexander and his mother Olympias um, and Olympias's relationship with Philip are pretty dramatic soap opera stuff and clearly important to all of their lives. The problem is we only get those few sort of tabloid headlines, um, most of which are at least questionable. And, um, you know, we know that throughout his life, though Alexander, when he left for um, cross the Dardanelles to go to Asia Minor in 334 BC, he never returned home. He never saw his mother. He never saw his sister again. He wrote to both of them. Um, frequently throughout the campaigns. And they were getting letters from him when he was right at the far end of the Persian Empire. So it's clearly an important relationship. But on the other hand, um, what it meant and to what degree it shaped him. Um, the tradition is that Olympias and Philip fall out and be from being, at least on Philip's part, a very sort of passionate love affair at the beginning, and scholars choose to believe that or not, depending on, again, their, their view on how these things work. Um, it turns to hatred and hostility. But, I mean, she is never divorced. There, She does... Um, you have, when Philip marries his... his the last um, wife to join the, the team, um, Cleopatra, you have the angry debate, or sorry, angry row, really, at uh, the wedding feast held in celebration where the bride's uncle um, proposes a toast that she'll give the king a legitimate heir. Alexander, understandably, is annoyed by this, saying, you calling me a bastard sort of thing, um, starts to argue with him. Philip shouts at Alexander because he's the host, and also you don't want to upset the, um, the sort of the, uh, the, the guardian of your new bride on your wedding day. And this is when he famously, Philip, tries to draws his sword and charges at Alexander and trips over as he comes across the floor because he's too drunk. And Alexander mocks him, you know, the man who wants to cross the Asia can't even cross the floor. So you again, you get these, these stories. And at that point, for a few months, Alexander um, goes into self-imposed exile. He flees off to Epirus and then to the Illyrians. And that's the closest he comes to being anything like Philip's experience in Thebes, I suppose. But again, he's, he's gone freely. He's not there as a hostage until he's recalled by his father and sort of told not to be so damn silly and behave yourself in future. Alexander does appear to be fairly, you know, certainly the, the obvious favourite to succeed Philip by this time in his life, because Philip has another son by one of his other wives, but this child is, is 
may be a bit older than Alexander, but considered mentally or physically incapable or both, and will only become king after Alexander's death because the, the different Macedonian factions are desperate to find a monarch. So, but otherwise, that one striking thing is that Philip, for all his affairs and for all his wives, and unlike earlier argued kings, doesn't actually have that many children, at least who survive into their teens and adulthood. And he only has the two sons that are legitimate. There are rumors of others from um, mistresses, but it's so slight, we really don't know whether or not they existed. And if they did exist, whether they were in any way favored and whether it would have been possible for him to have chosen them as successor. But again, Philip's only 46, um, you know, coming on 47. He could have gone on, he's just remarried. Um, he might have had more children. On the other hand, he's also planning this expedition to Persia. So um, yes, his, the, the new wife is pregnant and delivers a baby girl um, just before Philip is murdered, but there wasn't much time to have more children before he goes off to Persia and is away for years on end. In the same way people criticize Alexander for never fathering an heir until the last minute. Um, but even if he had, his reign is so brief that that heir wouldn't have been old enough to be um, unchallenged as king at Alexander's death, even if he'd had a son almost immediately, he became king. So it's there's clearly a complicated life going on there. And people like Olympias, as well as other women in the royal family, are clearly very important figures, but we know so little about them. And in her case, and in the case of some of the other um, people like uh, her daughter and Alexander's sister Cleopatra, some of the other um, royal princesses, they'll become very significant in the years after Alexander's death, and some of them will, will lead armies and be just as ambitious and murderous as their menfolk. But it's really only then you start to give, glimpse them as active players. They're, they're much more shadowy. Um, during the lifetime of well, Alexander. We need to start wrapping this up. We haven't even reached uh, Persia yet, but that was, that was actually planned. I have to say this is not an accident. Um, let's talk about, briskly, if you could explain the importance of uh, Chironea, which happens in what, August 338, and, yep. and then uh, why in the world Philip, how, why Philip gets in his head that he needs to attack Persia for revenge. The Battle of Chironea is really the sort of the last struggle of some of the southern Greek states. And again, you know, it's so easy to talk about the Greeks fighting Macedonia and the Macedonians winning and, um, you know, Philip destroying the, the freedom of the city states. Some of the city states were on his side, even in this battle. Um, and some of the others remain neutral. You know, Sparta didn't join in at all, um, as was often the case. It's primarily an alliance of Thebes and Athens and other lesser, smaller states against Philip and his allies. Um, the battle is actually very poorly described. I mean, it's, it's usually people fit it into this template to correspond to the tactics Alexander's going to use, they think, in the battles in Persia, forgetting the fact that he's fighting a completely different enemy on completely different terrain. So, you know, you read all these descriptions of Alexander charging at the head of the companion cavalry against the Theban sacred band and breaking their ranks and all this sort of thing, or having opened a gap in their line. There's none of that in the ancient sources. He did fight against the Theban sacred band, but we don't even know whether he was on a horse. He may well have been fighting on foot. Um, and, you know, there really is no reason at all to think that people as sensible as Philip and Alexander would have tried to fight this battle in the same way they'll fight battles in completely different situations. 
So it's the great victory, and it allows him to um, rather punish Thebes in Philip's case, but he's, he's as all, he always was, even though Athens is one of his most um, long-time opponents, he's always quite generous towards them. He doesn't really want to fight Athens. He certainly doesn't want the trouble of besieging it, destroying it, and probably the even greater problem of, if you do destroy Athens, what follows, what fills the vacuum, what um, follows afterwards in its place. So this is Philip's great triumph, and it allows him to go and the, what modern scholars dub, dub the League of Corinth, where the Greek states come together in a great alliance, appoint Philip as their hegemon, their leader, to lead them in the war of revenge against the Persians for the Persian invasions that have happened you know, almost 150 years ago. So this is something that, again, you know, as you said, it, to modern eyes seems fr frankly bizarre, that you would seek yeah. revenge for something that had happened so long ago, particularly as in the meantime, um, Athens, Thebes, Sparta have all taken Persian money and have all sought aid from the Persian king that is supposedly this, this you know, great evil empire off to the east to use against Greek opponents. So even Athens and Sparta, who led the resistance against the, um, the Persian invasions, have decided that Persia is actually more useful as an ally and... Um, their rivalries with each other are more important than um, any threat from Persia in recent generations, let alone, as we've you know, mentioned before, Thebes was with the Persians during the invasion, Macedonia was with the Persians during the invasion. So from Philip's point of view, you know, it, it's pretty tenuous from a, a purely Macedonian perspective. However, we have to think in ancient terms who would allow old grudges to be revived whenever it's convenient, just as old alliances, or even, you know, going back to the Iliad, supposed uh, friendships between two heroes and exchange of gifts allowed treaties to be smoothed through between contemporary states. Um, Philip develops the idea, but he hasn't originated it. Various Greeks have been talking about this for a couple of generations, really since the beginning of the fourth century. And there are people like Isocrates in Athens, who is very elderly by this time, but writes to Philip, encouraging him to take up this cause before Philip publicly does so. And they've argued that the Greek states are always fighting each other. They just can't seem to stop competing with each other over resources, over power, over glory, over prestige. So what we need to be properly Greek, to be truly civilized, is we need to go off and conquer Persia and then live there as a sort of as grandees over these great estates worked by the locals, the, you know, the impressed peasants who will do all the labor, and we will have the leisure time to develop ourselves culturally and take ideas and styles of behavior to the, the heights of what the Greeks should be capable of doing. And they also come to this idea, well, you know, we're fighting wars with each other, but actually the Persians, they're much richer than us. They've got tons of cash but they're not very brave. Whenever we fought them in battle, we've always won. You know, our hoplites can go through any Persian army. They're just soft, effeminate barbarians from the east. You know, they, they wear trousers. They do all these weird things that um, no self-respecting Greek would do. We're bound to win. If we win, we'll be really rich, and that'll solve all our other problems. So it, it's, it's a very strange thing, and it's a mixture of this, well, they're our enemy anyway, so they deserve it, to, well, actually, they're just vulnerable and they're rich, so we may as well. You know, we should because we're better people than them. We deserve, it's not fair. You always get this, this strange argument that it's not fair that they should have all this wealth, whereas hmm. we, who are far better men, 
don't. You know, so this is, um, Philip really taps into this, but I suspect a lot of it comes back to, again, what we talked about earlier. Philip has developed this system which requires ongoing warfare. He requires more victories. He requires, after winning one war, particularly a war he's just fought against a lot of Greek states, if he wants to get them permanently as allies, it's a very good thing to find a common enemy and go and pick on that enemy, try and unite in some great cause. So it, it has political appeal. It has a personal appeal to him in terms of cementing his own position and power. And also, you know, he's not the first Greek leader to go east. The Spartans have sent a few armies there in the fourth century earlier on. They haven't really gone very far, but they've taken some plunder and then they've eventually got bored and gone home. Uh, well, they've been pulled back because of other problems and that the armies needed elsewhere. Famously, Xenophon and the 10,000 as mercenaries had been stranded in the middle of Persia, lose their employer and then fight their way back to the coast and eventually back to, to Greece in some cases, or some of them stay there. So there is this perception that we're Greeks, we're better, we're stronger. And there is this, you know, the Greek temptation, this empire is there. And if we need a reason, well, you know, an old war of the last century is good enough. And to an ancient mindset, it was, you know, you don't ever get the Persians complaining, at least in our sources, that why on earth are you doing this? You know, why are you attacking us? What have we done to you? Um, okay. So it, it's, it's again, it's very alien to us, but it comes back to this assumption that, well, if you can dominate, you probably ought to, because that if you don't, people will think you're weak and then they will try and attack you. So it, it, a lot of these things come together, but it is, it's very strange. I mean, the Ultimately, by any modern standard, there is no good reason at all for the Persian expedition. It, it's simply opportunism. You know, it, it's it's a bit like the conquistadors going off to um, America and just seeing what they could find. Let's go. There are people there with money. Let's go and kill them and rob them. You know, it, it's mm -hmm. it's that sort of mentality. Yeah, it's it's uh, when you put it like that, it's a, a far longer human tradition than uh, than anything else. Mm. Yeah, certainly, than a just war tradition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. They've got stuff. Let's get it. <laughs> um, so Philip, on the verge of taking this war machine across the Straits into Asia, is assassinated. Uh, we probably shouldn't get into the, all the details of that. It's uh, a really bizarre thing. And a young man who's been gang raped and Philip hasn't done anything about it. Um, yes, the Macedonian court is, um, as I said, Game of Thrones. Yeah. It's EastEnders. It's you know, it's 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 uh, it's it's no big deal compared to, to the Macedonian court. But um, what could you just briefly uh, remind us of the different situations that Philip and Alexander came uh, faced when they acceded to the throne? Yes, I mean the the, the contrast is 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 really striking because Philip uh, Philip comes to the throne after his brothers died in battle with a large part of the army. Philip is stabbed to death in the theatre as, you know, he's about to be acclaimed by all the crowds and ambassadors from all over Greece. Within hours, Alexander is proclaimed king. Some of the potential rivals have been killed within the, again, within a few hours. The assassin's been killed before he gets a chance to say anything. Um, so nobody quite knows what's behind it. Now, there is, however, a clear perception in the wider world of weakness on Macedonia's part. You know, when Philip took over, everybody thought Macedonia was weak in the first place, and they were just surprised over the next few years where he fought hard and managed to beat off all the, the threats and all the opponents and gradually become stronger. Alexander spends about a year and a half, slightly less than that, 
mounting demonstrations of force, some active campaigning, mostly at first in the north. He sort of marches south into Greece almost straight away, and enough people think, oh, yep, hang on a minute, the Macedonians are still tough. Um, we better be careful. So, yes, we'll, we'll um, obey our alliance, we'll, we'll stay loyal to you. But there has been, Philip has made such profound change to Macedonia and its status that a lot of people must have thought, well, it's all down to him. You know, it's all down to the genius of that man. It's all down to this great general, this great politician, this wily operator, however you want to see him. Alexander's still unproven. Yes, he's fought at Chironea, but he doesn't have that much military experience. And he's fought as a subordinate. But the army is still Philip's army and Philip's creation. And overwhelmingly, the soldiers, the officers at all ranks are Philip's men. And most of them, this is quite an elderly army, even the one he leads to Asia, you know, has a lot of middle-aged men in it. Um, it's not sort of the, the 19, 20-year-olds that we tend to think of as, as most soldiers these days. Um, this is Philip's army. And the question is, can Alexander prove himself able to wield this army, but also prove himself to the army that they believe that it, with him as king, they will still keep winning, as they're used to winning under Philip. So these campaigns in Thrace in, against the Illyrians are very much a proving ground for Alexander, which he does rather well. You know, he makes mistakes, but he recovers, and he, he does show this, this knack of winning. He's got the big advantage that he has taken over an army that is a superb team. He's very confident, very skilled, very good at doing this. And you could say for a lot of the Persian campaigns as well, Looking at the army on campaign, it's basically Philip's army doing what it's always done. It just happens that Alexander's in charge of it now, and he's doing the same things his father had done. There's not really much innovation in that sense. But then you have the big um, confrontation with Thebes. There's been a rumor that Alexander's died in the north, so they think, whoopee, you know, not only is this king unproven, but now he's gone as well. Who knows what's going to happen to Macedonia? Thebes, humbled at Chironea, proclaims itself again as the great power. It attacks the Macedonian garrison that's been left in its city. Alexander rushes south, gets there before um, they expect him. Again, a hallmark of Philip's campaigning, moving very quickly, surprising the enemy, off, overbalancing them all the time, even to the extent where the Thebans are claiming, well, okay, there might be a, a Macedonian called Alexander out there, but it can't be King Alexander because he's dead or he couldn't have got here in the time. Um, and then again, siege and assault on Thebes is stormed and sacked and destroyed as a political entity. This is a really stark object lesson to the other Greeks that if you upset the Macedonians and Alexander, this is what will happen. And other than the um, a war by Sparta and her allies much later in Alexander's um, reign, um, you know, he can go off to Asia, take the bulk of the Macedonian army, they're not all of it with him, and Greece remains secure and remains loyal even if through fear rather than any great affection throughout um, his lifetime. So the fact that he can establish himself so quickly compared to Philip is testament really to all that Philip's achieved and all that he's built up. And essentially all Alexander needs to do is prove that he's, you know, at least as good as Philip or nearly as good or good enough to do what Philip's been doing and everyone's going to be impressed and everyone's going to be frightened of him. Whereas Philip has to start from a clean slate. Macedonia is weak. He has to make people believe that it's strong, both the Macedonians and all the, the neighbours and the outsiders and the potential enemies. So you can just tell the, the sheer pace of it all and the way it happens and the ease with which it happens. And he never really faces that tight a situation in that year and a half of campaigning. 
so uh, we need to start wrapping things up. And I, I wanted to uh, focus for a little bit on your sort of uh, what I, I think I described maybe earlier in the podcast, but certainly to you before we, before we began recording, as your acts of historical hygiene. On page 23, you use the, you use the phrase, may have, may have. Um, and then you say, uh, a page later, all we can definitely say. And that is not the first time. Uh, we, happen to, we happen to have evidence which may be mere chance, uh, and so on. Um, you're very careful uh, throughout the book. Uh, you must have been conscious of doing that. Uh, why? I think it's important to be honest with the reader, and that's true of writing all history, particularly history of the ancient world. There is an awful lot that we don't know. Um, and that's the usual things that you could complain of that authors at the time don't bother to explain how something was done because their audience of contemporaries would have known exactly how it was done. But it's, it's more important with the ancient world. There is no good, detailed, reliable, contem reasonably contemporary narrative account of Philip's whole career. There is no good contemporary account of Alexander's career that survives. Most of the histories of Alexander that are quite full, but they're nearly all written in the Roman period more than 400 years after his death. So, you know, a huge amount of time has elapsed. And you can look at more recent events in history at how quickly a sort of generally accepted lazy narrative developed that, that, that then becomes the truth and that people find very hard to challenge. And even people who were involved in the event start repeating it because it, it's much easier than actually saying, well, no, it didn't really happen like that. So... One striking thing about Philip is that for quite a few years of his life, we don't actually know where he was or what he was doing. And that's an indication of the quality of the sources and the, the, the great gaps in them. With Alexander, we usually know where he was. There are a couple of exceptions in the, the sort of campaigns in what's now Afghanistan, where the chronology isn't that clear at all. So, you know, at least we have that detail. But as I say, it's detail written much, much later, written by... Greeks who were living under the Roman Empire, who were living in a very different society. And it's it's all very well saying, well, they had sources that were contemporary. That's fine. But the old idea that you could sort of work out and deduce through reading them which source they're relying on in this particular case and therefore judge how um, useful or not that piece of information is, is highly questionable. Um, and the more I write myself, the more I think that that sort of textual criticism is 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 nonsense. It, it's simply the same author can write in completely different styles on different days um, without being aware of it. I know I certainly do. Um, <laughs> and the idea that some grammatical feature or some bit of information indicates, oh yes, that means he's using Ptolemy as his source or whatever. It, it's nonsense. It, it's all in the mind of the scholar doing. It might be very ingenious, but it has no basis in fact. And I would yeah. prefer... Um, I know a lot of people will come to this book and say, well, I want to know more. Why couldn't you stick your neck out? Why couldn't you guess? Why couldn't you say, well, this is what I think Alexander did. This is what I think Philip did. And not have all these qualifications of perhaps, of maybe. But I don't think that's, that's the job of a historian. I think honesty is most important. We are trying to get to the truth. And there are aspects of the truth, truth that we simply cannot reach now at this distance. And you could argue that even at the time, you know, who really knows exactly what's going on and what was going on in the minds of people when they make decisions, um, particularly when those decisions go wrong um, and what they say afterwards. Um, I rely, I'd like to be honest with the reader and let readers come to this know, well, not only is this is what we know, this is what we think we know, and this is how we think we know it. 
and leave it to them to make up their mind whether or not, yes, they believe that or not, and what they think. You know, they can, anyone can come to this book and they can create their own image of, of what they think Alexander and Philip was like and therefore what he might, what they would have done in any situation. And that's fine, but I don't want to impose that on them as the author because I just don't think that's good history. And again, again, we're not going to get the truth on an awful lot of these things, but you have to try to do it. And you have to be honest about what you know and what you don't know. Well, my guest today has been Adrian Goldsworthy, and he's the author of the new, his new, newest book, Philip and Alexander, Kings and Conquerors. Adrian, and thanks, as always, for being on Historically Thinking. Thanks for having me. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.